This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You probably heard the story today. I'm assuming you did. You knew it was coming because it's been talked about for several months now with the U.S. election. But Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, signed off today to keep the or to move forward the creation of the Keystone XL and Dakota pipelines. Now, this, as I understand it, doesn't guarantee that they're going to happen. It just moves the process along and makes it more likely that they will happen at some point. Well, joining us to explain this, if I, now I got to use the new phone system here, so we'll find out if Marvin Ryder, is Marvin there? I am here. Holy cow, the, wait, Marvin, we got new phone system tonight, and I had no idea what was going to happen when I pressed this button. Proof so again that you are trainable. Uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> you were only the first button I've pressed tonight. Give me time to really mess things up. Uh, but Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, as always, we'd love to have him back whenever we have an issue to do with finance or economics or things that I, frankly, neither could not understand or explain. We'd like to have Marvin on here. Um, you and I, Marvin, many times on this program have chatted about Canada's economy, and every single time, I think without fail, you have uttered the word oil. Oil comes up in every single discussion that we ever have about this country's economy. So it would seem to me that President Trump's signature today to push the or the pipeline, the Keystone XL pipeline, a little bit further towards reality could only be good news for our country. Yeah, I'm going to say that, at least from an economic perspective. Now, remember, what President Trump giveth, President Trump can taketh away. Yesterday, he seemed to be taking some things away. He was talking about taxes on foreign-made goods like foreign cars for sale in the United States. Suddenly, that could do damage to our car industry. But today, he giveth. And today, what he gave was approval for the Keystone XL pipeline. Now, from Alberta's standpoint, and remember that that province, uh, not that many years ago, it was a province that, you know, good Lord was smiling upon. They just couldn't print the money fast enough out there. Well, it's been the opposite. For two years, Alberta's been in a recession, and they've been desperate to hear some good news. They got some in November when Prime Minister Trudeau approved two pipeline renewals, the Line 3 renewal and the Kinder Morgan pipeline. And then this is a brand new pipeline that Donald Trump has said he no longer has any opposition to. That's the um, Keystone XL pipeline. So you've got three pipelines ready to move Alberta oil, tar sands oil, two different markets for refining or for whatever purposes you have. Now, these pipelines... There's going to be no construction starting here in 2017. Maybe in 2018 you'd see some of the construction begin. Not to be done probably for four or five years. So why is this good news? Well, for those people who like to explore, who are looking for new deposits, who are looking to develop new places, they weren't going to do that if there wasn't a market for the oil they find. And so we actually saw over these last two years a real deep freeze on the oil industry in Alberta these kinds of announcements then cause people to say, well, let's try it again, guys. Let's, let's reassemble the team. Let's send people out into the field. Let's see what we can do because we've now got a way to get our oil to market relatively inexpensively. Many things you said that I want to explore. So let's, uh, let's go through. But before we get to that stuff, I would bet you that if we were to go behind the scenes into the caucus chamber, the caucus room with Prime Minister Trudeau and his people, that if we could actually put a glass to the door and listen to them, there have probably been very few things, if I had to just guess, that have been said kindly about about President Trump since he was elected. I'm sure that they don't share a whole lot of things in common with the U.S. president. However, 
They had many, 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 including the prime minister today, very favorable things to say about this decision. It, it seems a little bit like strange bedfellows. Well, it, it does. And you see, the other part of it is it's a bedfellow that you don't know very well. So this is probably not the time to start drawing lines in the sand and making any great, great deep um, uh, requests of that other person. We're still trying to feel him out. So uh, just like everyone else in the world, every day Donald tweets, sends out 140 characters, and then the cryptologist set in to try to decipher. Now, what does this really mean? Is this good? Is this bad? And, and all the other talking heads. So, for instance, yesterday when he said he'd like to reopen NAFTA, oh, that could send a shiver down your spine. But the ambassador to Canada says, look, they don't really worry about us. It's Mexico they don't like. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll negotiate a couple of things. But look, Canada's got nothing to worry about. It's Mexico who's in his crosshairs. Well, that's one man's opinion. Until the negotiations begin, we really won't know what Donald Trump wants. On this one, this is something that I wouldn't necessarily say we were desperate to have. Remember, environmentalists today are up in arms. This Abs- is just yep, absolutely. the worst news. The other two pipelines that Trudeau approved, they're not happy about, but they replace existing pipelines. So it's not exactly virgin territory being turned over to the evil pipeline, but this is brand new, and this upsets them. And by the way, one other quick note. You noted two pipelines. We've talked about Keystone. The other is the Dakota Pipeline. This is the one. This is the one that got all that news last fall. It starts in North Ter- uh, North Dakota, and it goes past Sioux Land. Yes, yeah, uh, native land, right? Right. And remember, the, I think it was something lookout uh, lookout point or something like this. They had their big stand. Eighty-seven percent of that pipeline is done, but the part near the Sioux Reservation is held up. Donald reaffirmed the need for that pipeline today, and in fact, I think protesters are likely going to flock to it faster than they will to Keystone XL. When we talked, though, and we were talking about Trudeau and Trump, is this, now that this is needed by both, by well, now that Trump is saying we want to go ahead with this, but that also we could renegotiate, does he have a better leverage situation with Canada to renegotiate things like NAFTA by saying, listen, you want to have this, you want to pump your oil to us, we're interested, but let's talk about some other things. Is this a, does this give him a little more pressure on his side of the seesaw? Well, I'm going to say maybe, but I think, again, one of the things we've overstated here is Donald Trump's negotiating. He's not the one who's going to sit down and go clause by clause, section by section, and sort out NAFTA. He's going to have surrogates in the room. So when he meets with Prime Minister Trudeau, and he claims, he claims he's going to do that sometime within the next four weeks, uh, whether Trudeau's coming to Washington or he's going to Ottawa or they're going to meet who knows where, maybe on the Aga Khan's island, they'll, um, <laughs> they'll, they'll get together, and he's going to give some broad terms and say, look, when we get talking, here are the four or five areas. Okay, kid? And, and Trudeau's going to say, well, okay, yeah, we could talk about that, but mm, mm, no, I want to insert softwood lumber over in here. And that's at a very high level, you know, cover the, the territory that they're going to negotiate. The actual negotiation, Scott, I think it's going to take something like 12 to 18 months and then when you have whatever the new treaty is, the new NAFTA treaty, it then faces ratification, just like CETA needs to be ratified. Our parliament would have to vote for it. The Mexican parliament would have to vote for it. The, the um, American uh, House, of Con- or House of Representatives and Senate would have to vote for it, none of which is guaranteed. So this NAFTA thing is, is, is a slow process. Now, the, the Keystone one is not. The, the um, president has the final authority to approve this. The interesting problem, and you asked whether it would ever be built, well, the application to build Keystone was actually withdrawn after Obama said no. 
So he's approved a pipeline for which there was no application. Now TransCanada Pipeline has to put another application in process, reintroduce all the various environmental studies they've had, reintroduce the approvals from the various states and provinces they have, but the process should now go most smoothly. They'd got through all those other steps before it died at the top. So again, that's going to take several months to work its way through. But I think it is fairly likely we'll see construction begin on this at some point, probably next year. And, and is, it a, is it a guarantee, Marvin, that if construction started and it takes a few years to be done, and let's say four years from now, a more environmentally militant president were to knock Donald Trump out of the White House, could it be stopped? Could they say, no, we, you know, I know it's mostly built, I know we've put money into it, but we're not willing to risk running oil through this, so no, we're going we're gonna to snowball it or we're going to yeah. mothball it. So when you when you sign these kinds of deals, there would be clauses in there if somebody wanted to cancel. You remember that little thing we had in Oakville called the natural gas generating plant? Vaguely and, familiar. And then suddenly, you know, a premier came to his senses and said, no, no, I don't need that. Let's just cancel that. And the people said, no problem. Give us a billion dollars and it goes away. So there would be penalty clauses. And you're right. The president at any time or the Congress, the Senate, they could change their mind on something. But if they did, they just couldn't, as you say, mothball it. There would be penalties to pay, fines to pay. And probably at that point, so much of it would be done it would cost more to buy it out than to let it happen. Would we expect that there would certainly, I think, be Canadian jobs that would grow out of this if it happens in the oil sector itself, but would there be Canadian jobs, as far as we know, in the construction side of this, or is is it largely an American building project? Mm-hmm. So Donald Trump, in approving this, reiterated his statement from last Friday, America first, America first, So on the American part of the Keystone XL pipeline, he wants American content. And I think something Donald Trump is getting schooled on these days is this concept of what does it mean to say made in America. For instance, if I make steel using iron ore that comes out of Quebec, is that American steel or is that Canadian steel? Well, it's smelted in the United States. I guess that makes it American, but you know what, what percentage content? So when he says it's going to be America first, it means it's going to be primarily American labor and primarian, primarily American supplies on the American part of the Keystone XL. In the north part, the part that goes through Alberta and Saskatchewan, there'd be no such restriction, and I think there'd be some Canadian jobs. To your point, there's really two kinds of economic impact from a pipeline. There is the construction So when you hear numbers like 24,000 jobs, that's not correct. That really should have said 24,000 person years of employment. Sure, okay. So that could be, you know, 8,000 people working three years or 6,000 people working four years. And that's the big employment. Once it's built, the operating staff is much smaller. We're probably measuring this in terms of hundreds of people who would have full-time operating jobs at the end. And again, some of those jobs would be based in Canada. Some of those jobs would be based in the United States. So the, the, the full-time employment from this goes down. Now, the indirect employment, because of course we transport oil, then it's got to be refined, and then those refined goods, you know, so on and so forth. There are other jobs downstream that come from this. But the big thing up front are, are the construction jobs, and that's what everyone's so excited about. Uh, maybe a silly question, but what is the steel industry like out west? Is there any chance that Hamilton Steel could benefit from this in any way if we're talking about a project this large? So, again, I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to define Hamilton by 
the namesake of the company. So, for instance, I think there's a pretty good chance that ArcelorMittal Steel will be involved in this. Whether it will be the steel made strictly at DeFasco or whether ArcelorMittal says, I'll tell you what, to meet the criteria, we're going to shift some American production to Hamilton so then we can do this down in the plants, down in whatever it happens to be, Indiana or Illinois or something like that. But I think it will be some brand-name steel companies that we'll know who will get the contracts. At this point with Stelco, remember, we still haven't got the deal that Stelco is bedrock and it's not U.S. Steel. At the moment, if U.S. Steel were to win something, I'm not sure we'd benefit from it at all because they have no affinity to the Canadian operations. So the sooner we get bedrock done, now again, remember, none of this is going to start happening until 2018, 2019. That's plenty of time to get this sorted out. And then conceivably, conceivably, the new Stelco could get involved in some way. Okay, so we've got about a minute and a half, and I will, I will, we're going to go back to some territory that we've covered many times in the past, but I want you to do what you do so well. <laughs> Take all the pieces of the theory and put them into practical. If the pipeline goes ahead and if the oil starts gushing through the pipeline, so oil is now leaving Canada, we've got the oil that's going back, what would happen to our dollar? What would happen to inflation? What would happen to all those different things? How would Canadians across the country see the impact of this? Mm-hmm. Well, much of this is also predicated upon what is OPEC going to do. So if you don't mind, I'm going to start there. Yesterday, we had a report of the OPEC meeting held on the weekend, and OPEC says they've cut their production by 1.5 million barrels of oil a day. In theory, when you take that out of the stream, price of oil should be going up. Price of oil going up is good for our dollar, it's good for our stock market. If you've been paying any attention, though, the price of oil hasn't moved. It's still around $52, $53 a barrel, and OPEC has said their target was $60 a barrel. Why hasn't it moved? Well, at the same time we got the OPEC report, we got a report, now this was strictly in the United States, that said the number of oil exploration sites and production sites had gone up over the last year. It's a record number of oil rigs. That hasn't happened in Alberta, but the minute these signs start to trickle through, guarantee you now we're going to see that going up. So whatever... OPEC takes out of the system, Canada the United States are putting back into the system, there is no guarantee that the price of oil is going to go up at all. Uh, and so I think, you know, in that sense, for our general economy, there is no real big use except that it's getting Alberta back on track, and maybe to some extent Saskatchewan. That's not a bad thing. Ontario, is, ours is the manufacturing. We don't really benefit from all of this. We're going to be watching closely the other Donald Trump edicts because that will have an impact on us much bigger than, than Keystone. But isn't the whole, as we go, isn't the whole idea of building these pipelines that we become less sufficient on Mideast oil and therefore what OPEC does becomes less important because we have more oil here on the continent that we can use for ourselves? You're not wrong, but to set the price, it's still OPEC that pumps the majority of the oil, and so what they do really helps set the world price. In other words, we don't have a, a uniquely Canadian price for Canadian consumers, and another one for international consumers is all priced the same. So what they do on a global scale still affects us. But in terms of energy self-sufficiency, which is why Donald Trump approved this, he wants to see America not be holding to anybody. He'd love to see Canada not be holding to anybody. And that's you know, from a policy standpoint, that's a great thing that we're self-sufficient. But in terms of a dollar thing, it, it really doesn't do anything for us except to get the Alberta economy back on track. So we can't make OPEC largely irrelevant by keeping most of the oil on the continent? Not, not at this point. Now, down the road... Remember that the amount of oil sitting in Alberta is greater than they have in Saudi Arabia. It's just in a really sticky form. If we can find ways to get that oil out and get it recovered in a more environmentally friendly way, then in 10, 20 years maybe we can, but not in the next couple of years. 
Marvin Ryder, always fantastic having you on. Always great to hear your explanation. Appreciate the time tonight. Thank you. Anytime, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I've, I've been wanting to do this topic for a while, and it's been fun. But let me tell you why, because this is where it really started. We've all heard about wine tasting in the past. We've heard people say things about wine. They describe wines and we read it. At least if you're like me, you read it and you say, wait a second. They got all that out of a sip of wine. Cause what I got was wine. But anyway, then I got to this. I was, someone said to me, you know what you should really try? You know, what's really good. Now I know it's not wine, but they said you should go and try Wayne Gretzky's new whiskey. Now Wayne Gretzky, you know, has a winery. He has uh, apparently a very well-received winery, but he also has now started making whiskey at this place. And so here is what the, one of the online descriptions, taste tests of Wayne Gretzky's whiskey was. Now keep in mind, this is whiskey. For many of us, you sip something like that and you go, oh, it tastes like whiskey. Well, not the reviewer. The reviewer says an aura of concentrated dark fruit arrives early, principally damson plums used for preserves. Fresh lemon drops waft in for a short stay, followed by a woody hue with definite red wine accents and a rustic earthiness. A wave of wine-dipped cigars in an open humidor enters the olfactory picture. Then there is late caramel crushed pistachio, just a hint, a hint of bulrushes in summer and light potpourri. And then the finish, long and somewhat drying with reminiscences of the impact of Grandpa's soft leather wingback chair on the air absorbed by the taste buds, dark fruit, and just a smidgen of grape jelly. Now, again, I didn't get any of that. What I got when I tasted it was whiskey, but that's just me. Uh, Tony Aspler is the wine guy, TonyAspler.com. He has been writing about wine for... 30 years, roughly, he is one of the best in the business, especially in this country, at doing this. And so I said, if we're going to have somebody on, let's get someone who knows what they're talking about and can really try and teach a neophyte and a rube, let's be honest, like me, about this. Uh, Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Thank you, Scott. So I got to tell you, as I said in the intro, when I sip a glass of wine, I taste maybe fruity. My tongue will tell me if it's dry or not, but I don't get all those 15 different things that a lot of the experts will get out of a a sip of wine. And so I'm, I'm sitting here going, okay, either I just don't have a good tongue or people who are reviewing wines are making this stuff up to make it sound deeper and better than it really is. Tell me what it, tell me what's going on. Yeah. I think probably the thing is you're not using your nose. Your nose is your most important organ when it comes to wine tasting, okay? Um, It'll tell you basically everything you want to know about the wine. The only thing it won't tell you is how long the taste will linger on your palate. Your nose, as I say, is your most important uh, organ. Um, If you, you can do this at home. If you hold your nose and you take a sip of wine, you're not going to taste anything. Right. Okay. So basically, it's your nose that is telling you about the wine. Your palate, it will confirm the flavors, okay? Um, What you said about the Wayne Gretzky whiskey, I mean, that's a flight of fantasy, yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. 
and I, I, I think from the style of it, I think I know who m- might have written that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, they, it gives it away. You, you know, the colleagues who, uh, yes, who, yes, who might so. have licked Grandpa's wingback chair at one point to identify that flavor. Yeah, 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 or sort of uh, <laughs> smelt Granny's knitting box, you know, or something. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the kind of thing, Tony, honestly, that's, those are the kind of lines, let's be honest, that make people like you and other people who write about wine sound like yeah. pretentious snobs, yeah. because we say, how that's do you true. know what Granny's knitting box smells like, really? That's right. Or tastes like? Yeah. Um, but, you know, the thing is, it's, when you analyze a wine, it's probably one of the most difficult things to do is to break down what you smell. When you sniff, when I started in this business over 40 years ago, uh, I was at wine school in England, and my professor, my teacher, was an ex-British uh, sailor, and he obviously looked at things through a nautical perspective, and he said, oh, this smells like tarred rope. I couldn't smell tarred rope, <laughs> but uh, ultimately... The more you use it, because people don't use their nose. This is the one sense they don't use, especially men. I mean, women use it when they're choosing fragrances, and women are much better at this than men, uh, because they're you know cooking, they're, they're and you know they're smelling their baby's head and whatever you know. So that the, they have a much more advanced nasal acuity than men. However, this is something. The nose is a muscle. The more you use it the more acute it becomes. If you go to a supermarket and pick up fruit and just sniff it and lock in that smell of uh, grapefruit rind or if you see some sort of cut fruit, some melon or something like that. But that's what it's about. It's about taste memory. And taste is basically smell. So were you, you say you went to school for this, were you always naturally predisposed when you studied, I mean, what made you go to school? Was it because you could taste wine and you could really distinguish, no. or did you become that after you had gone to school? No, I was just curious about wine, uh, and I wanted to learn about it, and uh, it's, the more you do it, the more, you know, this this 10,000 hours of tasting, you know, has, has The 10,000 hour rule, right, about anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for instance, this morning, I was at the LCBO tasting 60 wines that will be released at vintages stores and, you know, writing about it, uh, writing my, my notes on these wines. Uh, and this is, you know, it's a real intellectual discipline to be able to actually analyze, to, to decompose flavors and talk about them and talk about the balance of wines and... You know, grapes have an inherent quality about them. They have a flavor. And uh, there are markers. For instance, if you take a grape like Gewürztraminer, you smell lychees and rose petals. Those are markers. If you smell, for instance, Riesling, you're going to get lime and grapefruit. You know, they don't put lime and grapefruit in the wine, but those are the kinds of flavors you're going to experience when you you actually smell smell Let me stop you for a second, Tony, because my question to that is, why? And, and, and it sounds like a silly question, but we're, yeah. we're talking no, about... it's not a silly question because a lot of people think, oh, uh, you know, if you smell these things in a wine, if you smell strawberries in Pinot Noir, do they put strawberries in Pinot Noir? No, they don't. The thing is that the, the grape inherently 
will have a flavor which is intensified by the trace minerals that the vine sucks up you know, through its roots. So it really depends on where the grape is grown. For instance, Chardonnay that's grown in a warm country, uh, a warm region, will have tropical fruit flavors. If it's grown in a cold climate like uh, Burgundy, it will have more uh, green apple and, uh, you know, the, the, those green plum kind of flavors. So it, really climate and soil have a, a great influence on how a wine is going to taste. Okay, and so let me, let me I've gone to another site. I've left the uh, Gretzky whiskey one because I thought that was so ridiculous. I've gone to another site that actually had much more sensible, let's put it that way, uh, reviews. And it talked about a Riesling, and this is a winery from the Niagara region. I won't yeah. say which company it is. Uh, and they describe it this way. This is a quote. It carries a fresh floral crispness, light peach that pairs well with shellfish. Now, I'm reading that, and I think... You know what? We grow peaches around here, and it's the Niagara region, so that would make sense that you're talking about the soil, you're talking about the environment. I could understand the idea that maybe there was a, some kind of a peach flavor in that wine. That, to me, is logical. Mm-hmm. Now, I go to the next one, though, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this right, a vignole, um, and it talks about aromas, and this is, again, a Niagara region wine, aromas of mango, apricot, tropical fruit, and pineapple. And I'm thinking, wait, we don't have any of those things no, growing I, around here. This is, you're probably talking about the Viognier. Viognier, sorry. See, that's I told yeah. you I couldn't um, pronounce it right. Uh, and that, that is a tropical, I mean, that, that has much more, it's much more aromatic, and it, much, uh, it has that much uh, more tropical kind of character. Uh, I mean, we... we Niagara is amazing. We can grow grapes in Niagara uh, that anybody around the world can grow. I mean, we're growing Syrah, which is a warm, you know, a warm weather grape. We're growing Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot. Um, we're, we're growing all these kinds of grapes. Uh, we're living in a, <laughs> an amazing country, a region that, that can do these things and making great wine from them. Okay, so let me go further, because again, it, it, that, that's one of the things, I'll be honest, that is a stumbling block for me sometimes when I hear about a wine from here described in tropical terms. Mm-hmm. It just, it doesn't seem to make logical sense, but I, well, I understand when, your point. You know, I tell you, Scott, have, have you tasted ice wine? Ice wine has really tropical flavors. You know, that uh, some of those uh, Riesling and Vidal ice wines have that mango and peach uh, and pineapple flavors because of the concentration that you get from leaving grapes to freeze on the vine. So we can do it. I mean, uh, Canada is, is, you know, is making some amazing wines. I'm, <laughs> I'm a great booster for Canadian wines. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, that. Th- there's no such thing as a, well, there's, there is, but there's most Canadian wines are very, very good. I, there's no question about that, especially around here. I, it's rare to get a bottle that you say, oh, that was terrible. I mean, it's, it's generally very, very good around here for sure. Now let's move on to the next step though, because, and and here's where, and I'd love to hear from you honestly, as a legitimate reviewer, whether there are a lot of people out there who are just blowing smoke. Cause again, I, I went through a whole bunch of reviews today of things and many of them used terms that I can clearly understand and say, you know what? I can get where you would come to that point. But when you start seeing things like it has notes of gunmetal or rubber tires, I'm sitting there going, how do you possibly know what gunmetal tastes like? Yeah, 
you know, there, there's a, a descriptor that I use sometimes is struck flint, uh, which is, you know, it, it's that sort of earthy kind of uh, almost sulfury note. And this is, this is uh, because of the wine having, using sulfur products in the production of it will, you know, can give uh, that vestigial kind of smokiness to the wine. Um, yeah, I mean, there there is a lot of um, poetry, shall we say, <laughs> that goes into a lot of wine writing. Um, I, I'm not a great fan of uh, of that that style of writing. I I want to tell people, you know, does it taste good? Will you like it? Is it is it a well balanced wine? And is it worth the money? Yeah, because uh, Tony, when I read, and, and again, being very honest with you, when I, I could read a review of a wine, and if it says that it has hints of rubber tires, I got to tell you, the last thing I want to drink is rubber tires. That's and right. that, that to me doesn't exactly sell the wine. And, and I go back to my point, even if a wine reviewer could pick out that flavor, how do you know that's the flavor? It's, it's, that's not a good sign. For, for a start, that means there's bound in sulfur in the wine. Uh, but, um, you know, for... for for instance, Riesling, when it starts to age, takes on the smell of petrol. That's so, another word that comes up a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, this is a legitimate term that, that for, for aging Riesling, it will smell. I don't know how, if you've been sm- sniffing gaf ta- uh, gas tax at late. But, <laughs> know, right, right before the show, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, th- that does happen. I mean, uh, and it is a marker for, for maturing Riesling. Okay, so we've got probably three or four minutes left here. I would like to have you then, since, again, I said right off the top, I'm a complete amateur at this. I'm sure many people listening fall into the same category as me. There's probably some that are experts. If I was going to be sitting with you and you were going to be explaining to me, certainly not to be able to keep up with you. You've been doing this, as you say, for 40 years as an expert. But if I want to say I would like to be able, when I go home tonight, to have a sip of wine and maybe pull out three flavors or two flavors out of a wine when normally I would simply taste wine. Walk me through. How do I do that? Well, first of all, you've got to use your nose. You have to swirl the wine in the glass uh, in order to warm up the esters, and the esters rise, and the the esters carry the wine's aromatics. So by swirling the the glass, you're going to get a better uh, concentration of bouquet. Smell it and, and sniff it. Take little sniffs. And uh, see, close your eyes and ask yourself, what, what, what does it smell like? Uh, that, that's really hard to do in the, you know, in the beginning to, to actually put adjectives to, to what you're smelling. It is. But, but you know, is it, does it smell like fruit? Does it smell like flowers? Does it smell uh, like crushed earth or, or damp earth or what have you, stones? So you start off simply by, by trying to you know, deconstruct the, the smell of the wine. And then take some on your palate, let it, let it sort of roll around on your palate, and suck in some air at the same time, okay? Because by sucking in air, you're doing what you're doing by swirling the glass. You're getting more of the flavor sort of generating around, you, around your mouth. And uh, so this, this helps you to taste. Uh, and then just just sort of close your eyes and think, okay, um, wine's made up of fruit, 
an acidity and sometimes if it's aged in oak so there'll be oak uh, and try and see what the balance is like you know is it fresh is it fruity or does it have you know great depth of character it's really you know it's not something that you can actually talk about it's a very personal thing you know uh, how you taste wine is 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 really up to you Oftentimes, though, the bottle will give some hints. It'll say some of the things on there. I mean, for an amateur, for a beginner, would you ever read the bottle and say, okay, let me see if I can pull this flavor out? I mean, it may be putting the thought in your mind, but that well, might give it. you a hint I mean, of where to start. I, I mean, I could say to you, oh, this wine smells like a beaver's armpit. And you, you know, and say, oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, you know, uh, people are very suggestible when it comes to, to, to uh, this kind of thing. Uh, but... Um, the back labels can be misleading because basically they're trying to sell you something. Of course. Okay. Uh, so uh, they're trying to put the best case forward for their wine. Uh, I don't read black, back labels um, because I don't want to be influenced by what the winemaker or the publicist for that wine has to say about it. Do you ever find, Tony, that when you have reviewed a wine and then you look at someone else's review of the same wine, you have completely different tastes that you've pulled out of there? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that happens. Uh, but, but not, not it, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not to the point where this one, somebody says, oh, well, this wine tastes like raw steak, and I say it tastes like, uh, you know, gooseberries. You know, it's, it's not that kind of... <laughs> Minor differences. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 they could say, well... This this tastes like black currants, and I say, well, it tastes more like cranberries to me, you know, this this kind of thing. So it's we usually we're in the same ballpark when it comes to to wine tasting. Last thing, we just have a second or two left here. I think that one of the mistakes I would guess that many people make, myself included, is when you sip wine, you would drink it the same way you would drink almost anything else, and your tongue almost becomes a funnel that just pushes it to the back and down your throat. How important is it to get it all over every part of your tongue? Because we have different areas of our tongue that have different flavor abilities to to grasp. Absolutely. I mean, you taste salt on the tip of the tongue. Uh, sorry, sweetness. You taste sugar, sorry, on the tip of the tongue. You taste salt on the sides of the tongue. You taste acid at the back of the mouth, and you taste tannin, which is that harshness in wine, at the back of the mouth. So you have to let it really wash over your entire palate to get the, the sense of it. Uh, you know, in that. And uh, there are... Uh, glasses that are designed in order to direct the wine to different parts of the palate in order to maximize the sort of sensory appreciation of that style of wine. Tony, we are out of time, unfortunately, but listen, I really appreciate you coming on today. I appreciate you being a good sport because I know that, you know, dealing with people like me and the other amateurs, at a certain point, you probably got to say, come on, just Trust me, it really is all there. And so I'm going to have to work on it along with a lot of other people. But Tony Aspler, you can read his stuff at TonyAspler, A-S-P-L-E-R.com. He's the wine guy. Tony, great job today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. Uh, Again, I am the self-admitted non-wine expert. And I always become suspicious of the wine people. But they insist that it's there, and I'm, I'm going to have to work on it. I'm going to try. I am truly going to try. Next time I have wine, I am going to swirl it around to warm it up. I am going to sip it and suck in air at the same time, 
and I'm going to swoosh it around my tongue, and I am going to do my darndest to see if I can pick out other flavors in there. Do the same. If you're having, if you're having a glass of wine right now, as I'm speaking, if you are sipping on a glass of wine, do that. Send me an email. Tell me if you could pick out another flavor other than wine. Your non-trained palate. Can you identify, oh yeah, there's something else. Radley at 900chml.com. Send me something if you try it and tell me right now, can you pick out another flavor if you taste it the way Tony says you're supposed to taste it? Tell me. I'd love to hear from you. Radley at 900chml.com. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. When you're watching the Super Bowl, you can now be watching to see how hard the refer- the, the, the coaches on the sidelines are working the refs. How much are they talking to them? How much are they yelling at them? How much are they giving them the gears? All that kind of stuff. Because it's long been believed, anyway, that somehow this would lead to an advantage. That if you work the refs, that's what they call it, working the refs, if you work the refs, and point out to them that they just blew a call or they missed a call or whatever else, that they'll feel they owed you one and will be kinder to you subconsciously or intentionally at some point later in the game. It'll pay off for you down the road if you let the ref know what an idiot he really is and how he just screwed you over. He's going to feel badly and give you the benefit of the doubt. So the question is, though, is that true? Is there any scientific evidence, statistical evidence, any kind of other evidence to suggest that referees truly are impacted by being worked? Is there any evidence that referees actually make different calls as a result of coaches or players on sidelines talking to them, yelling at them, giving them grief, maybe even buttering them up? Who knows? Well, Michael Lopez is an assistant professor of statistics at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York. He recently co-authored a piece that was published on the website 538, great website, and the piece is called NFL Coaches Yell at Refs Because It Freaking Works. Apparently, the, the stats say, yeah, there is something to this. Michael Lopez joins us now. Michael, thanks for doing this tonight. Sure, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, when you wrote this, this is the greatest news ever for coaches the world around because now they can actually say, yes, I am doing something during a game. <laughs> I guess that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> well, explain the story because you uh, take a couple minutes and explain what you researched and how you came to the conclusion that it actually does work. Sure. So I, I do a lot of work in statistics and sports and, and a large part of some of the stuff I've done has to do with referee bias, and so how referees are making their decisions, what, is, uh, what are some of the, the inputs or the reasons that they're making the decisions that they make. Um, and the, sort of the largest perceived advantage that um, referees give a certain team is long believed to go to the home team, right? So referees, when in doubt on questionable calls, will favor the home team, and, there, and there's sort of a lot of social pressure and implications of that decision having to do with crowd size, the proximity of the crowd, um, fear for retribution of the crowd for making a bad call. Um, and I, I, thought, uh, I thought about looking a little bit closer because, uh, in fact, when most coaches are making, or sorry, when most referees are making the decisions, the, the people that are closest to them that are sort of begging for the calls aren't actually the fans. It it's generally tends to be the coaches. You know, whether it's Bob Knight throwing the, the chair or whether it's, <laughs> you know, Bo Pelini at Nebraska throwing his hat on the sideline of a, a college football game, 
you know, there's sort of a, an immense amount of pressure on these referees. Um, and unlike fans who ne- maybe don't necessarily have a voice after the game to, to sort of express their displeasure, the referees themselves might fear retribution from the coaches who are talking to the media after the game and might be able to, to quickly bring up a, a call. So sort of the idea that I had was to, to look at how referees behave in the, in the pressure of, of coaches that are nearby. So how do you go about doing that? Because there's, it, it seems to be that is a very ethereal concept. Is how do we break down whether or not a coach has an impact? Right. So the, the sport I found it easiest to do in was football. And part of that is because football has pretty discreet play-by-play data where it says where the play went. And you can sort of use that with some information from what teams are defending what end zone and where sidelines are aligned on certain fields to sort of figure out, well, if they ran a play to the right in the first quarter, they were running at their own sideline, right? So if they're running a play to their right at their own sideline, what calls might they get the benefit of the doubt on? Um, Well, in that case, if you're an offensive team running a play at your own sideline, one of the things that your sideline can do is draw defensive pass interferences, right? So you throw the ball to your own sideline, it's a questionable call, You know, when you see this in a game, when it's a questionable pass interference call, the entire sideline starts moving their hand to their hip, sort of throwing the flag in the air, right? So you can sort of say, all right, well, this is where the play, the pass would have landed. You know, are we seeing an increased number of defensive pass interferences in this spot? And then you can compare that to what happens on the opposite side of the field, whereas on the opposite side of the field, they might throw that same pass, but instead of the whole sideline putting their hand to their, you know, hip, making the flag motion, now the whole sideline is quiet. And moreover, if you do float a flag, the whole sideline will get upset because they're going to argue that there shouldn't have been been a flag to begin with. And so when you do this, is there actually, when you look at the numbers, is there a discernible difference? Yeah, so there's a pretty big difference, and it's mostly around midfield. Um, And so I looked at a couple different uh, flag types. So I looked at pass interferences on the defense. Uh, I'm going to call them aggressive penalties, which means like face mask, personal foul, uh, late hits, unnecessary roughness. And so those penalties were, were called at greater proportions um, on the offensive team sideline, right? So you would imagine that the offensive team would be able to draw a penalty on the defense. And then I looked at, conversely, I looked at holding rates on the offense, and that was actually the, the reverse association. So offensive holding rates on, uh, on, on outside run plays were higher on the um, defensive team sideline. And it, it's, it makes a lot of sense when you really think about it, because I don't think, first of all, I don't think you're suggesting that the referees are doing this consciously. It's a, something that you respond to, because whichever side you're looking at and the side that responds, that is what gets into your face. That's in your background of your vision, so it's going to affect you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the more I, I, I look at referee behavior the more I think to myself that I'd probably be doing the exact same thing if I was in their situation. All right, so I have a colleague, very close colleague at, at, uh, at work who is an official, a football official, and when I told him about this, he, of course, vehemently denied anything that you said and demanded that this all be looked at again because he, you know, he's an official, and he says, no, it's impossible that I could possibly be swayed even subconsciously by this. So let me raise a couple of his issues and tell me how your science answers his question. The first one is, he says, okay, so are the numbers, what happens when it's down by the goal line when you don't see the, the, the coaching staff in the background? Are the numbers the same at the goal line as it would be by the bench where the coaches are standing? Right, so the numbers, once, once you get to sort of either team's end zone where there is no sideline pressure, the rates of penalties are pretty even. And so the only difference in terms of when that flag was more likely to be drawn sort of was only in that, that sort of, 40 or 35 or 40 yard box where the coaches stand. Once you get beyond that, there didn't seem to be any difference in these penalty rates. 
So in other words, when you're not with the bench in the background of your line of sight, the advantage goes away. Correct. Which is fascinating to me because that, of anything else, that seems to be the, I don't know, the, the, the thing that would convince me. Because when I watch football, oftentimes the, especially when you're getting near the goal line, is where you're going to see pass interference. You're going to see these kind of things. And if it's lesser there than even in midfield, that, that to me almost proves your point. I mean, it, or certain, certainly bolsters it. Right, yeah. This is one of those situations that um, I, I, I sort of saw the, the graphs when I first made them, and I, I sort of had to check the data a couple times because <laughs> I, I thought to myself that this was almost too good, to be, too, too good to be true in terms of, like, the effect was, you know, right where I would have possibly expected it. And, um, you know, it, it's also sort of a fairly strong effect right near the, the middle of the field. And, then it, and like, like you said, it, it sort of disappears when you get to the end zones. Michael, the other point that he raised was, okay, so what's the what's the actual percentage difference because maybe it's just a statistical fluke that the numbers are higher there and therefore you can come to a conclusion that the coaches or the sidelines affected it is it substantially different the number of penalties that are called in that area or is it really just tiny bit higher well so i think with um uh, i think with all three penalties it's a it's a fairly substantial margin um it's hard to sort of precisely identify whether or not it's you know, to, to one person it might be meaningful, to another person it isn't. Um, I think the overall number of pass interference penalties, you know, I think in the, I looked at four years. and uh, Every play from four years? Uh, yeah, this is four years of data that I was looking wow. at. Wow. Um, and so there were 100 more flags, defensive pass interference calls, on the um, offensive team sideline. And that is, um, that's comparing, like, numbers look like right around 300 to right around 200. And so that that's a pretty big difference, right? It's a very big a difference, absolutely. Percent increase in the number of flags, um, and I, I mean, I think <clears throat> I, I think it's both pressure to throw a flag on one sideline, and then it's also pressure against throwing the flag on the other side. So you can almost imagine that it's not necessarily just the the, the sort of um, the the sideline causing more flags. It's also the threat of what the sideline will do that's going to possibly prevent flags on the other sideline. It could be 50 up one side and 50 down the other side, which would come to your 100 difference. Right, that's, that's sort of my thought. I don't know if you did anything as far as looking at the particular coaches. Uh, I'm wondering if different coaches who are better or more, uh, they wave their arms, they jump around, they're more outrageous, if they actually drew more penalties than the guys who are very quiet. You know, Bill Belichick, as an example, very successful coach, but generally doesn't do much on the sideline. He may work the officials, but he's not going to be wildly swinging his arms and flailing around. Other guys will. Was there any difference, or did, we, did you look into that? Uh, I didn't find any difference that was big enough to report it. You know, you, you're sort of looking at 30 different teams. There's a, if you're looking at 30 different teams, you're sort of getting, of course, you're getting smaller sample sizes of games, but the other thing that you worry about is that if you do notice a team that is um, peculiar, there, it could just be because you're looking at 30 teams and it wouldn't surprise you that one of them would stand out. Um, and then the other thing that I looked at was to see if any offenses had sort of figured out, you know, we should be throwing more passes at our own sideline or... Yeah, that will be a smart strategy. <laughs> Um, and, and most of those teams seem, seem to be, you know, at this point, um, you know, throwing, uh, you know, throwing passes to each sideline with, you know, sort of the same ratio, um, you know, 50-50. So to this point, no team has seemed to have taken advantage of it, um, but potentially, I don't know, that, that might change. It's a little bit hard to tell how much, you know, teams are paying attention to some of this stuff. I know you're a statistician, not a psychologist or psychiatrist, <laughs> but if you were an official then, 
How do you overcome this? Because it, it, again, I don't think anyone is suggesting they're doing this intentionally. If it's a subconscious thing, if it's an unconscious thing, how would you, how do you make sure you don't do this? Well, that, that's, that, <laughs> I don't have a great answer to your question other than I, I can, I do know for sure that when past biases have been brought up with officials, um, whether it is uh, the way that they're, they're calling strikes in baseball based on, um, you know, sort of the, the, the strike zone was, was shown to be different than how umpires were calling it. You know, umpires, several of them were able to adjust their strike zones accordingly. Um, when it, w- it came out that sort of um, uh, NBA referees were making calls potentially based on the, the, the race of the players, this was a sort of a study that was done about a decade ago, that was pretty big news, and, and it was discussed a lot in NBA officiating circles. And then once that was discussed, the sort of effect disappeared. Um, so I think there can be something to be done, um, but whether or not the, the league or, or officials actually think this is a big enough deal to, to think about and, and move forward with um, is sort of, uh, uh, I'm not sure I can, <laughs> I can guarantee that. You know where this does, for me, become very interesting? Because in the NFL, everybody's paid a ton of money, and you don't want them to behave like boobs, but, I mean, they're going to, winning is everything. But when you start going down to levels in kids' football and other things, people who realize, you know what, working the ref really does have an impact, it could actually have a, a really negative impact on the game. If you truly believe that if our sideline just acts really outrageous every time there's a close call, we're going to get that call. You know, the NFL is one thing, kids' football is another, and that may be problematic. Right, and to be honest, I, I fear the effect is, um, <laughs> is sort of existent in a lot of other sports too. Oh, I'm sure. Um, certainly basketball and and. Lots of coaches will talk about how working the ref is part of part of their sort of routine. Um, I, I think that's certainly true. I also, I, I guess the other thing that I like to look at is sort of the the way that it sort of tells us about human behavior. You know, the example that I've, I've used a couple times is if you go back to, <laughs> I think it's a Christmas story or something where the the kids are pressuring, you know, one of the kids to put his tongue on the, on yes, the ice yep. bowl and it gets stuck to the ice bowl. You know, if a bunch of people are around you yelling you to, you to do something. It's really hard to say no, um, and I think that that certainly shows itself with referee behavior. Michael Lopez from Skidmore College, I really appreciate you doing this. Go look up the piece at 538.com. Michael, really uh, great work. Thanks for taking the time. Sure, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it, again, before the Super Bowl, and I'll post, I'll, I'll try and link to this. I'll link on the uh, Scott Radley Show Facebook page because it's really interesting. And you know what? So when you're watching the Super Bowl, watch for that. If it's an offensive play, so a pass play, a run play, that's going towards the team with the ball, the offensive team's sideline, he's saying stats show considerably more penalties will be called on the defensive team, and vice versa. If the play is being run towards the defensive side, the team on the defensive sides, the defensive team's side of the field, there will be more holding and other offensive penalties called. Watch for it. And you know where we can actually see this? The Canadian Football League now reviews, offers coaches to challenge and review pass interference and things. I'd love to find out if more calls are overturned or more pass or more flags are thrown following this same pattern. It'd be fascinating to figure that out. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.